0: Things have happened in the last few weeks. Uh, I do want to thank you for uh, praying for us as we traveled up to South Dakota and back. And uh, that was uh, a very easy drive. Thank the Lord for that. We, we had no complications either way. And it was great to have uh, somebody else who could drive with me, with Josh. And, and uh, so he got a good chunk of that on the way back because we drove and got in at 3 in the morning. On a Saturday. And we were trying to race the last storm front that was going to hit Kansas before we got out of there on Saturday. So we, we raced it. And we won. And that was great. So we were glad for that. But I'll tell you what. 19 sermons in five days is an awful lot. I I started to feel that on Tuesday. After eighth one was over, I thought, I'm just going to die. There's, there is no way you could do 19 in one week. And uh, the Lord provided some good sleep for me that night. And the next morning, I, I felt much better. And uh, then by Thursday and Friday, I was really moving well. Then it was hard to even stop after 19. But uh, that was a good time. It was a good time for me uh, to spend with students that I see uh, on a regular basis. I have This is the first semester where I have a freshman class. And there's 25 of them in that class, which is huge for what we're used to. Usually my classes run about four to six, maybe, and have 25 in on the Skype screen there. They, they spill over. I don't see them all. They're, the screen's not big enough to cover everybody sitting in the class. And, and they always thought I was just about this big, because <laughs> that's all they ever see on the screen. And so some of them told me they were glad to see I was a lot taller. Uh, than, that. But uh, it, it was good to see them and spend time with them and, and uh, such a great group of, of future leaders in our churches. Uh, young men and, and young ladies and some I was able to see that had been here. Isaac was up there. He lives right there as well. Isaac and his wife Angie and, and several others. Uh, so it was a really nice time. And I really do thank you for not only the prayers but giving me the, the privilege of doing that to go up and spend time with them. Uh, That's a special thing. And so, uh, with all that sermon material, eventually you will get all of that. All right? Because uh, we've been working on some of it on Sunday nights. We've been looking through the book of Colossians. And then I did that whole study on Philippians, too. I taught all the way through Colossians and Philippians. And uh, so I've got this 160 pages of notes that... uh, they were thrilling to me uh, to study them and to share them. And, and I want to share that with you down the road. We're going to work our way toward that. Uh, today I want to add uh, from Ephesians chapter 1 where we are, also some of the comments I made during that past week, uh, which fit so beautifully in the middle of what we're looking at here, that I'm going to combine two things with you. And so I'm so glad I have a little extra minute here or two to add to this. We were looking in Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19. What Paul desires for the Ephesians was that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. Now the Lord has made that possible. The, the Greek text actually says that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. But... We turned it into the nature of a prayer here, and I think it's appropriate in that sense too, that if this has already been given to you, then we ought to put it in motion. And so uh, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? We've spent several weeks on this passage. And they're all incredible things. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the greatness of his power. Those are all tremendous things. But watch what he does with the rest of this. And and we're going to just kind of give the big picture today and then we'll come back and work in, in some of the detail as we go. But right in the middle of verse 19, after he mentions the greatness of his power toward us who believe, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a tremendous statement. And we're we're going to work our way through this because of what it has to say. But first let's ask for the Lord's help. All right, Heavenly Father, with your word in front of us, we come to a passage that uh, speaks of our Savior Jesus Christ and how great he is. And we are certainly in need of help to not only comprehend the words that are before us, but also to understand who our Savior is and what our response to him must be. So as we spend a little time here this morning focusing on the greatness of our Savior, Lord, warm warm our hearts, help us to, to draw near, to see these things and to live in light of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a neat word right in the middle of verse 19. These are in accordance. Uh, the, the Greek, it's a, just a simple little word called kata, K-A-T-A. And that's a proportionate term. It's, it's a neat concept because what, what he's saying is, you have strength. All right? He just asked that uh, in reference to his prayer in verse number 19. He's talking about the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This is the power in you and in me because Christ is in us. Now, he says, now, you want to know how much power that is? First he uses the word surpassing greatness, which that goes beyond any tool we can measure with. I don't know of any tool that we could measure surpassing greatness with. But then he goes to say, now, the same power that we're talking about, it is matching... And then it goes through this list. The working of the strength of his might. And then he gives you a quick picture of where that took place, among all the other things you can name. Here's the one that that hits us quickest and, and probably most personal. When he rose from the dead. What kind of strength and might and working and power goes into resurrection. We're not talking about as much that that Jesus walks into the cemetery and he has a stone rolled away and he calls forth Lazarus. Oh yeah, that's the power of God, right? That's Lazarus rising up from the dead. We have examples of that. But this is Jesus Christ himself rising from the dead. What kind of power is that? All the other instances that you read of, resurrections, somebody is doing that. God, Jesus Christ, is doing that for somebody. The picture of the resurrection of Christ by his own power, by his own strength, it's a powerful concept when he rose from the dead. This power is on display in this passage. And where is it operating? If we go into the passage and follow the context, it's operating in and through us. I almost get goosebumps thinking about the idea. How powerful our God is. And that he's actually working through us. His power is displayed through us. And and so I read these passages and I see this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named. This is an exceedingly great passage. Speaks of the power of God in us. Speaks of the power of God in us. That was the message that follows all the way through the book of Colossians the joy of sharing that chapter those chapters with them passage after passage after passage on the fact that Christ is supreme in everything think that through just for a minute Christ supreme in everything what is omitted nothing everything he is supreme in the passages that we were Focusing on in our study, and I've shared some here on Sunday nights in Colossians 1, verse number 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He says, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is to be first in everything. In everything he is to be first. He is to have the preeminence. That's why God designed it. That Jesus Christ be first. When we get to chapter 2 of, of Colossians, verse number 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Wow, what a phrase that is! In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Is he sufficient for all we need? Think about that. If we say he's not, then we want something greater than God, don't we? He is God. And in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Incredible phrase that is. He is God. Everything that we speak of that he's done, he could do, whatever, it's all wrapped up in the fact that he is God. Then in chapter 3, we got to a passage there where it speaks of the fact that uh, while we're living and we we are to live in light of the fact that all things and in all, all things is Christ. That's an incredible concept to come to understand. Whatever we do, and he goes through a whole list of Ephesians, or Colossians 3, is, is very personal. It goes right to the heart of a lot of things, like, where have you set your mind? Where have you set your eyes? What are you doing with your life? How do you behave? How do you speak? How do you, you know... Cooperate with spouses and and, and all these categories of life are all wrapped up in that chapter. And they said, and who's, who's the dominant one in all of that? Christ, in all things. Christ. Would that change a marriage? Wow. Would that change behavior? Yes. Would that change the words we say? Yes. The whole chapter is full of it in Colossians chapter 3. Christ in all things. Christ. And then chapter 4. He gets very, very practical, but he says this directly to those who are masters, who have servants. But the concept spills into the whole picture when he says, You have a master in heaven. You have a master in heaven. We all do, don't we? We have a master in heaven. And he goes through all the details of again how do we live, how do we act, how do we speak, what do we think, how do we treat people? All those things are under the category of we have a master. Our master is in heaven. The the, the whole picture of that book was to show us Christ Supreme. Christ Supreme. Christ Supreme. No one greater than him. For if anyone is, then he's not supreme. He must be, and He is supreme. And so we could think it through theologically, we could think it through biblically, we could think it through rationally, if you like. we see scriptures that declare over and over and over the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are we convinced of it? Are we absolutely sure? He is Lord? And to what degree is He Lord? Just over certain things, this compartment, that compartment, this department, this 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 part of a day, maybe he's Lord of Sunday. Or is he Lord? Scripture does call him not only the King of Kings, but the Lord of Lords, right? He is to be supreme in everything. That thought has been on my heart for so long. It's just because I had to work my way in studying all that. Then I had to share all that. And each time it was like talking into a mirror. Is he? That was the question I kept hearing back at me. Is he? Is he Lord of everything? Is he supreme in everything? Is he supreme in you? That's what kept coming back. In you? I said, oh my. Now it gets real personal. Is he supreme in me? And that's the, the other side of the study that we were able to do. And so I repeated that over and over. And still, to, to that degree, it doesn't, it doesn't measure up to the greatness of who he is. So this is where our problem lies. And, and this, this quote I'm going to read to you, I think, expresses well the heart issue. Because I've had to evaluate, if he's not supreme in me, then what's my problem? What what is it that that caused this this contrast to what I read in scripture? And here's a quote I I read to you, and I probably have before. But well over a hundred years ago, President Abraham Lincoln uh, made this statement. Now, keep in mind, for him to have been president, it was just during those years of the Civil War. Very difficult times that he was uh, leading the nation. And these are the words he has said. Amazing words. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all those blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own, Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Aren't those strong words? How would you like to hear that from the White House today? We have grown, but we have forgotten God and we've attributed it all to ourselves. It was our wisdom. It was our strength. It was our virtue that brought these things about. And we've forgotten the God who has made it all possible. Let's consider his main points just for a few minutes here. I find it strikingly similar to the American church today. In general, the big concept of the American church. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power. You know, in my lifetime, I see the church use a lot of church building programs to reach people, to, to bring in numbers. And and uh, some of those, I would say, they have value. They're good reminders of what we ought to be doing. That's fine. Perhaps the biggest one, as you will well know, Back in the 80s especially and into the 90s it spilled into, as it developed and then eventually became a curriculum. The Purpose Driven Life. The whole concept of, of the Purpose Driven Life and, and how that was supposed to be it that brought about church growth. To reach those masses of unchurched people. And it was kind of interesting in all the, the techniques and ideas that were offered to us to bring in Numbers. They kept Christ out of it. That's my opinion. But here's what they were recommending during those days, that those who came to church not bring their Bibles. Because you might offend somebody who comes to church who doesn't have one. I find that alarming to tell the truth. That's like saying, okay, um, why don't you come, soldier, into battle without your weapons? Or, as you who know the medical field pretty much, uh, go ahead, surgeon, work on me without any instruments. That would be an interesting ordeal. A pastor without a Bible? A church member without a Bible? The church without God's Word? Where does that lead? You know where it leads. For if we don't have our guide, if we don't have our help, we aren't focused on Christ. It walks away from him. That's the nature of man anyway. Every opportunity we get, we're going to walk away from him. Because that's what carnal man does. It was in enhancing that by saying, don't bring your Bible. That bothered me about it. That bothered me a great deal about it. Because the Bible tells me about my Savior. And that's who we're supposed to be worshiping. So, I've seen those techniques, and I've seen the the techniques as well, during the 80s especially, where the church dove into politics big. Remember those days? They had groups that would would, uh, promote uh, voting, would promote politics, especially one particular uh, um, party in their teaching and in their preaching. And as a result of that, there were some very well-known people out there, very pro, pro, uh, high-profile people speaking in the churches about politics. And you say, well, okay, what's wrong with that? Well, when I was at Moody, uh, we have a Founders Week every year, and uh, the, the school would invite some of the big-name speakers to come and speak to us. And so we had... Oh, all kinds of names from Francis Schaeffer, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, you know, all these. As students, we all sat there, you know, wide-eyed and open-mouthed because it was amazing just to have these guys standing in our auditorium speaking to us. And uh, I remember vividly in the 80s that a speaker came and um, his final words of his message was, Vote for the Republican of your choice. And that's the way he finished. Something that was supposed to be bringing us to Christ, he turned into a complete political sermon. Is what he did. Now, I remember that very vividly. Uh, I also know that you can't find that in their files. That that entire sermon has been deleted and gone. Uh, But at the same time, there was an opinion in those days. And you might recall this well. There was an opinion in those days that the church will sway the vote. The church would sway the vote. Maybe it did. Maybe it did. But the concept was that the church was going to bring in righteousness. It was going to fix this nation through politics. I believe Scripture tells us that it's righteousness that fixed the nation. <laughs> But too often we turn that around and what we offer instead, instead of Jesus Christ being our righteousness and we present him, we we think that maybe politics can bring it about. And that's not true. It never will be true. For that matter. Remember, when you leave Jesus Christ out of the whole picture, it doesn't matter what church, it doesn't matter what country, it's not going to be called blessed without him. It will not. Lincoln said, we have forgotten God. In other words, we might be going down the path of all these programs and ideas and politics and you name it. We're doing it all so happily to bring in something good, but who did we leave out of it? We leave God out of the whole picture. What do you have left then? You've got religion, but you don't have God. So you start to To see what we have today where religious concepts are being pushed out, pushed out, pushed out of every part. Think of a part of society where they they really enjoy religion to be a part of it. They push it out. You know for a long time that our public schools, and thank the Lord that it hasn't hit here like it's hit in other places, our public schools have eliminated anything related to Jesus Christ. Or um collegists have totally eliminated anything that would be spiritual in nature. The majority of the denominations in our land are totally contrary to the things of Scripture. It's frightening to put it all down on the page and say, Wow, what are we what are we doing here? What is our nation going through? Now read Romans 1 and I say, wow, if that's not a picture of the modern church, I don't know what it is. Romans chapter 1, you can see it. Go over there to verse 18 and as I read through it and think, does this match our society or what? Romans 1, start in verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what he has made known of God is manifest to them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead. So they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature.
1: Likewise also
0: the men, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbriters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Isn't this a powerful thing? Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do they do the same, but they also approve those who practice these things. In other words, they applaud it when they see it. Now, is that our society or what? Not only our society that's infiltrated churches <laughs> frightful but it's true it's frightful what what is the main point of that where is god left out forgotten walked away from didn't retain him all these words are written in there they've turned their back on him now just before all that was said paul made this simple statement in verse 17 For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Right? The just shall live by faith. Faith in what? If you go through the whole context, it's in Christ. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. In other words, you take Christ out of the picture, and what do you have? Only what man can do. Only what man can do. Lincoln said, We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom in virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become... Too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. I think that there might be that day
1: that those who
0: agree with Paul's statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I think there will be fewer of those in the future who will, be af- who will be unafraid to say it, unashamed to say it. That's frightful. But that is the course we're on. That is the course that our country is walking down so quickly. And someday we might be the few. We might be the, the ones who will stand there and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation. You see, once we eliminate Christ, where's the power? The church has nothing without Christ, nothing. Who do we worship without him? Who do we sing to without him who do we who do we just save by if we don't have him? Who do we live for if we don't have him? See, that's a picture that sets before you what I think is rather bleak as far as what would happen without Christ. But we come back to the question, and the question is simple. Who is supreme? Who is supreme? Whose church is it? Isn't it his? Doesn't it belong to Christ? It is His body. It is His church. Who's the one who said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Who said that? Jesus Christ did. Was He just being hopeful? Or was that a true statement? You see, even in the midst of bleakness, as I, I described all that to you, I am so confident that Christ is Lord, And that his church will not fail. His church. His body. It has been designed that it bring him glory. It has been designed that in the end it reflects him. For we are all going to be conformed to the image of Christ. That will not fail. I'm thrilled with knowing that. That is my anchor. That's my hope in living days like this. I could read what Lincoln has said, we've forgotten God, and say, yeah. I could say, we've done this all on our own strength, we've attributed it to ourselves, and I said, yeah. But, I know the story, it tells me that my Christ is supreme. And I live in light of that. I must. I must, there's no other alternative. For that's who we serve. That's who we serve. We go out from this place on a Sunday and we go out into the world to to do our living and to do our working and to do our, you know, our family relationships and all these other things. We're members of His body, though. We're saints equipped for service, aren't we? We've been prepared to do good works as he has designed it we are we are in the process together of building up the body of Christ and every part is important each person contributing what they have from the lord that the whole body might grow up why do we leave people behind when it's the whole body that's to be built up and we're supposed to be giving our attention to that see we're not done with our work until the body looks like him so we're called to this. We're called to be a part of this. And we can't forget Christ. We can't hear, leave Him out of the picture. See, there's such a beautiful link between all this in Scripture that, that I've seen and, and I'm amazed by. In Colossians, it stresses the supremacy of Christ in everything because we need to know who we serve. Then in Philippians, it gets so personal. You tried to read that letter without getting... Having it affect you? It gets so personal. It speaks of Christ supreme in me, in me. In me. In me. That examination. You can't avoid. You just can't. And so the thought came to me. Is How am I going to convince the world that Jesus is Lord if I do not act like He's Lord in my own life? How can I say he's supreme in everything if he's not supreme in everything in me? What kind of picture am I giving to those who see and to those who might evaluate the way I live? See, I'm afraid that it's easy to contribute to the problems of our world. All you have to do is go along with them. That's all we have to do. Turn any ministry into a job and you're heading down that road. Separate religion into a separate box. Just call it Sunday. And Monday is a different day, and and Tuesday is a different day, and the characteristics of all those days are different than Sunday. Because Sunday is the day Christ is supreme. We do that, and we're going just down the same course. If we leave Christ in the church, as they say, when we go home, we come here to meet with Him. Then we go home to our places. I I recall back in the 70s and 80s, when I was uh, young, just before I became a teenager, and then later as I was a teenager, walking through the parking lot of the uh, church on a Sunday evening, just before evening service, uh, the cars are all coming in, and, and they all have a similar thing, and some of you might remember this picture. A Bible on the dashboard. The Bible's always on the dashboard. It was true in my home, too. The Bible on the dashboard. You know what? You say, well, that's great. They're bringing their Bibles to church. Yeah, that's why they left them on the dashboard. So they wouldn't forget to take them to church. But guess where it was on Monday? It was on the dashboard. And where was it on Tuesday? It was on the dashboard. And you say, well, why is it there? So I don't forget it's Sunday. That's why they kept it on the dashboard the whole time. Some of you will remember seeing that similar. I saw it all the time. And I always thought, well, that's kind of funny. What do you mean the rest of the week? It just sits on that dashboard. After a while, the sun had bleached the top of everything except for one square spot. That's where that Bible always sat. On the dashboard. D.L. Moody used to say seven days. Without the Bible, makes one weak. W-E-A-K. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So what am I communicating here? Simply this. Our world desperately needs to see and know Jesus Christ. Who knows him? We do. Do we understand that he is Lord? Well, we read it. We talk about it. We sing about it. But is it something we live? That's what it comes down to. Do we live this in front of people? So that our our words match our actions. If we don't, then we're contributing to the very same thing that we're bemoaning. Because we know who is supreme. Even if no one else does, we know who is supreme. Now look at what Ephesians said here. This, This calling we have. This inheritance we have, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. The greatness of his power toward us. Whose power? Whose glory? Whose calling? His. Where is it? In us? Wow. He said, I don't know how I'm going to be able to live this out. He never called you to live it out. He said, trust me to live it out in you. It's his strength. It's his strength. It's his strength. And then he goes to describe what it looks like. This is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. When we try to do it apart from him, we've forgotten. But it's his strength. It's his working. It's his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now, It says, Christ is far above all rule. Is there any rule greater than his? So he's supreme in that, right? And authority. Is he supreme in authority? Yes. Is he above all powers? Yes. Is he above all dominions? Yes. Is he above every name that has ever been named? All those in the past, you mean? All those great names in history, is his name greater? Yes. All those that march on the earth today and think that they're pretty good as far as their name is concerned? Is he greater than those? Yes. And what if one pops up on the horizon? Somebody new tomorrow who comes with a great name who's greater still? He is. It says he's above every name. Every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. So nobody's going to take his place. He's supreme all the time. And, what's under his feet? All things. And who is the head of the church? He is. What part of the church? All of it. You see the picture now? All of it. He is a head over all things to the church. He is a body. He is a fullness of him who fills all in all. These words are incredible. This is our Savior. He's supreme. And this is the one who works within us. And when we look at the tasks that we're called to do, sometimes you say, I can't do that. You know, kind of like that Tuesday feeling after preaching eight sermons. You say, I'm going to die. I just can't make it through. Right? We sometimes think it can't be done because we've taken our eyes off of Him. I don't want to be there, do you? I I don't want that bad focus. I don't want a man-centered concept of, of how to live and what I teach and what I preach and how how I reflect that to the world. I don't want it to be me. I want it to be Him. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Is that where we are? That's where we should be. But that that's because of who He is. And His gracious work in our lives. He's making us like this. He's changing us. I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad for that. These are powerful words. We've got to break them down and we've got to take some many weeks, I think, to do it because it's a good section. But that's a big picture of it all. Who is supreme? Who is supreme? It's Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. Amazing. Amazing thing. Let's talk to him about this. Heavenly Father, we come before you even now as we've focused on some of these words here and thought about how they reflect in our world around us. Lord, surely our society has turned its back on you and has gone so quickly in the wrong way. We do not want to be contributors to that mentality, to that behavior. We want to set our eyes on Christ, on things above. We want our hearts to be anchored there. We want our lives to reflect Him. We want it to be said of us to live is Christ. And these words remind us of how great our Savior is. For there is none greater than Him in any way at any time. He is supreme always. And we needed that view today. We need that perspective. We need that reminder Where the world has a loud voice and it sure has set an awful lot of things before us that would distract us from our Savior. Lord, work in our hearts. Draw us only to you. Help us to see. Help us to know what you have done for us. What is that hope of our calling? What are the riches of the glory of the inheritance? What is the surpassing power that works within us. That we might be what you've designed us to be. and That Christ may be declared Lord, not just from our mouths, but also in our actions. Draw us to you today, we pray in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.